God's design for human friendship, companionship, even sexual intimacy, finds its most profound expression in the marriage relationship between Adam and Eve, between one man and one woman. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 110, and I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Continuing our series on Scripture and homosexuality, Dr. Cornelis Venema will begin to look at Scripture now, beginning in Genesis as a basis for human sexuality. And with that framework in mind, looks at a variety of texts in the Old and New Testaments that are concerned with homosexuality, where he then gives us a proper understanding of them as we learn to interpret these passages of Scripture. In our first session, I don't know whether I gave a broad description of our topic, but I'm using the theme, Abiding in the Word of Christ, the Church's Present Challenge, particularly in respect to debates about homosexual orientation and homosexual practice. And in our first session, I gave a broad overview of the Church's historic confession regarding the Church as a unique community purchased by Christ that has at the core of its identity its willingness and readiness to listen to the word concerning Christ and from Christ that we find in the scriptures. And so I did a general overview of what we believe and confess regarding the scriptures as a sufficient and clear word from God by which Christ, our only master, regulates and governs the faith and conduct of his people. Now, in the second session, what I'd like to do is, as best as I'm able, give a broad overview of the Scripture's testimony regarding the specific question of human sexuality, and in particular, uh, homosexual practice. And I'm going to begin, if you think of the Scriptures broadly as representing to us the great story of God's great work in creation— in the state of the created order before the fall, and then the fall into sin through the transgression and disobedience of Adam together with Eve, whereby the whole human race was plunged into sin. The story of redemption that's unfolded in Scripture is a story of God's reversal of the consequences of the fall and his bringing his people redemption in Christ and ultimately in Christ and his coming kingdom to the new order of things in the new heavens and in the new earth. Now, I use that broad framework because I think the place to begin when it comes to debates, controversies regarding human sexuality is what is often called with God's design, what in the beginning, in the context of God's good work, he declared his work, his created world, human beings bearing his image, to be very good at the conclusion of his uh, great work of creation and establishment of a relationship between himself and his people. What in the beginning, so to speak, was God's intention and design for human flourishing on the part of those who bear his image? And it's against that background that we have to 
understand why subsequent to the fall into sin, we find that order broken and in many ways put out of accord with God's original intention. And we should see redemption as God's work of reordering and sanctifying, restoring, renewing, and bringing to its perfection human life. So I'm going to begin with what is the biblical norm as it relates to the question of human sexuality. And it's striking that in the Genesis accounts in chapters 1 and 2 that you give two not contradictory stories regarding the creation of man in God's image, but you get a very summary statement in chapter 1 which presents the creation of man, male and female created he them, as the sort of pinnacle, the uh, apex of God's work of creation, that according to God's design, uniquely among all creatures, human beings were created and differentiated as male and female, and created for communion fellowship with God. Now, in the second chapter, we have the most significant testimony regarding that difference or distinction between the human race, humankind, distinguished into male and female. And I'm assuming that my hearers are familiar with the account, uh, but one of the key phrases in that chapter, chapter 2, which zeroes in on and has a kind of narrower focus on the uniqueness of the human race and Adam and Eve as creatures with whom God intends to enjoy a close and intimate relationship, even covenant of a communion of life, is that the text makes very clear, and the language is well known, uh, God seen before Adam begins to carry out the creation mandate, God declares it is not good that the man should be alone. And then you get the account of Adam's falling asleep, God taking from his side a rib from which he forms Eve, and whom in the telling of the story, it sort of ends rather dramatically with a presentation on God's part of Eve to Adam. And you can sense a kind of uh, joy and delight that finally here is a helpmeet suitable who complements Adam. The distinction between Adam the man and Eve the woman, who's later called the mother of all living, is the most dramatic expression of how God himself aims not only to enjoy communion with those who bear his image, but reflects something of his own tri-personal being as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not accidental that the text on a couple of occasions speaks using the um, first-person plural, let us make man in our image, that relationship intimate and beautiful between Adam, the man, and Eve, the woman, who fully complement each other. It's very clear that when Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that's metaphorical language to be sure, but it has its roots in what is true, namely that she was taken from him and created in order to be given to him and he to her, 
And in the relationship obtaining between the man and the woman, God's design for human friendship, companionship, even sexual intimacy, finds its most profound expression in the marriage relationship between Adam and Eve, between one man and one woman. And it's not difficult to infer from that that in the arena of man's identity sexually as male and female, the realization of God's design for human sexuality is to be found within the marriage relationship and commitment bond, covenant made between Adam and Eve, the man and the woman. God himself, you might say, not only creates the estate of marriage, but he conducts, in a manner of speaking, the first wedding ceremony. Now, if you start from that basic biblical premise that the most profound expression of human interrelationship and friendship between men and women created in God's image is to be located in the marriage relationship, you can understand you have a context and framework within which to read the story that unfolds subsequent to the fall and God's sanctioned curse upon the human race in Adam's having sinned. So I'm going to turn now, having made that rather broad and general statement regarding God's original design for human sexuality, which is to find its expression and its consummate beauty within the relationship of marriage that God has established, you can begin to understand the prohibitions that you find in the uh, scriptures regarding other forms of sexual expression outside of the bond of marriage that are corrupt and contrary to God's design. And students of the Old Testament will often begin, and that's where I'll begin as well, in terms of those biblical prohibitions against forms of sexual expression that do not accord with God's created norm. You have these stories in the book of Genesis and also in the book of Judges regarding the practice of a homosexual relationship between members of the same sex. The two most significant, the most commonly referenced accounts, these aren't so much prohibitions as they're exemplary of a violation of God's norm for human sexuality. The first of those is the well-known story found in Genesis 19 regarding Sodom. And in the account that you're given there in Genesis 19, clearly the mob that gathers outside the door of Lot's home who are wanting to take hold of or become, they want to know the language is, uh, these men, heavenly messengers who've come to visit Lot. The story is traditionally understood, hence the word even, this is not a very nice word, the word sodomite, that their desire to know them was a desire to engage in same-sex homosexual practice with them. Now, I'm going to come back later in another session 
to deal with some of the ways in which revisionist interpreters of Scripture will push back against that traditional reading, that the reason in the Scriptures the behavior of these uh, citizens in Sodom are described, their behavior is described as wicked, vile, disgraceful. There's even a reference to this in the book of Jude in the New Testament, clearly a case of perverse sexual activity was what they had in mind when they spoke of knowing these men. Uh, modern revisionists will say, well, the real issue there, the sin of, this, of, of Sodom at this point was a failure to recognize traditional conventions for hospitality, showing hospitality to strangers. Uh, but the problem with that is when in Genesis 19 we read the word know, to know them, this is the verb that's used in the Hebrew is the same verb that's used elsewhere in the immediate context, opening chapters of Genesis some eight or nine times, if the most obvious being Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore to Adam and Eve a son. Uh, the knowing in question is sexual intimacy, but sexual intimacy in the case of Sodom of a sort that violates the norm, hence is described as a species of wickedness, uh, and for which the city itself and its inhabitants, among other sins, it's not to say that the only sin of Sodom was the sin of homosexual practice, but it's clear from the narrative that that's principally, if not exclusively, the offense that brings upon them uh, God's just judgment. Now, I'm not going to give much of an account of a similar story told in the book of Judges in Judges 19, in the case of evil men who surround the house of a old resident alien by the name. Uh, his name is actually not given. He's called an old man who invites two strangers into his home, a Levite and a concubine. And uh, the people of Gibeah, these evil men, they too want to know him, that is, this Levite. The old man rather suggests that he's willing to give them, it's a rather remarkable and sordid story, he's rather uh, prepared to give them uh, the concubine and even his daughter if need be so that they could know them. Clearly, the sin of the Gibeonites at this point, or Gibeites, it was the sin of engaging in homosexual practice. Uh, it was not an instance of showing a lack of hospitality. Well, those are a couple of stories in the Old Testament that subsequent to creation and the fall are representative of a broad condemnation of sinful practice sexually between uh, members of the same sex in this particular in these particular stories, men lying with men. And that brings me to a second category of Old Testament teaching which are the Levitical holiness codes or texts. In the book of Leviticus, you have instructions on the worship and service of the Lord uh, on the part of the Levitical priesthood and the offering of sacrifices and the like. And there are two particular prohibitions in the holiness codes, regulations regarding the conduct of God's people. The first is in Leviticus 18, which reads, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable. 
The second, very similarly, is in Leviticus 20, verse 13, where we read, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their heads. Uh, And here again, the background, in my judgment, to these prescriptions, you know, of course, that in the book of Leviticus, you hear this refrain again and again, be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. A holy God aims to enter into a relationship with the people whom he purifies and sanctifies for communion with himself. And so in these particular holiness codes, you have clear, strong prohibitions that is, it is out of accord with a people who would enjoy relationships with God, uh, dwell in his presence, and he dwell among them, that they should engage in these forms of homosexual practice. Now, I can't help but run ahead again just to uh, preview where we're going to go a little later in another session. There, too, revisionists will argue things like, well, these are holiness codes that have to do with cultic practice and forms of sexually immoral and corrupt practice among the people surrounding Israel. And so they don't have general application beyond that rather limited or narrow profile of what was true in the the cultus, that is, the ceremonies and rites associated with the worship of God and the ministry of the Levitical priests. Now, I see I'm using up a lot of time to cover the the ground. We may have to come back to this at the beginning of our next session, but I'm going to go quickly now to the New Testament. However, I will make one sidebar comment, and that is when I describe the original circumstance uh, and design of God for marriage, many of my hearers, many of you may be thinking to yourself, well, what about the practice of having concubines, and in particular, polygamy that seems to have been tolerated at various points, significant points in the Old Testament history. My only observation at this point is God, in his mercy, condescended to permit a practice. We know this from our Lord's words in the New Testament Gospels. It was not so from the beginning. When he's asked about Moses' permissions, for example, for uh, divorce, a writ of divorce, um, clearly there is an accommodation on God's part. It's a whole complicated question. I'm not going to go into it here, uh, but it doesn't remove the fact that in the larger portrait of the whole of the testimony of the entirety of Scripture, the norm, again, is a monogamous relationship, a committed relationship of two parties, one man, one woman, committed to each other, for whom the marriage bed is to be kept holy. But now back to the New Testament and some key passages There are a couple of places in Paul's epistles that are in particular noteworthy. One is a significant statement at the end of chapter 1 in Romans. I have in mind especially Romans 1, verses 26 and following. The other one is a passage in his first epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. And one other passage where Paul lists a number of 
noteworthy sins is in his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And as I'm considering this, I'll, I'll read these passages now, and in our next section, I'll begin by making some comments on them before I turn to another uh, general topic. The first of these passages is Romans 1, where we read at verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now that comes in a context about which I'll say more in our next session, but I just want to leave you with these passages uh, before I conclude. The second passage is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, in some ways, in my judgment, perhaps the most significant passage in all of Scripture and certainly in Paul's epistles. And there we read these words, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The last passage that I'll mention is 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. And there the Apostle Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That concludes, broadly speaking, the most compelling and direct testimony in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. But for now, I'll wait to say anything further until our next session. Join us next time as Dr. Venema continues his review of some New Testament texts on the issue of homosexuality and then begin to assess the revisionist interpretation of these texts. That is, how do those who affirm homosexual unions interpret these portions of Scripture? For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.